You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So a few years ago, I heard the story of a pastor who was living in a poor town in Honolulu. And one night around 2 a.m., he was stirring, couldn't sleep, and ended up going down to the local diner. And he sat down, he ordered some food, and about a half hour or so later, a few uh, women walked in who were local prostitutes. <clears throat> and so the pastor just proceeded to strike up a conversation with them and began to learn their names. And one of them was named Agatha, and her birthday was going to be the following day. So a few of them went on their way, and the pastor walked up to the chef of the uh, restaurant and said, hey, what do you think about having a birthday party for Agatha uh, tomorrow? And the chef said, great, you know, I'll make the cake. And a few others chimed in and said they'll bring streamers or they'll bring presents. And so the next day, 2 a.m. rolls around, pastor gets out of bed, heads to the diner, and who walks in the entire town was apparently invited because there are 75 patrons packed into this small hole in the wall with balloons and presents and streamers. And 2.30 arrives, and here comes Agatha. And she walks in and is shocked as everyone yells, surprise. (laughs) And she sits down at the table and the cake is about to be cut. And she says, don't cut the cake. No one has given me a cake in 10 years. I am taking this thing home and putting it in my refrigerator and never touching it again. So the pastor gets up and says some affirming words about Agatha and just prays a prayer of blessing over her, that she would know that she is made in the image of the invisible God, that she is loved by God and that she is celebrated by those that know her. And so people begin to filter out as the evening fades and the pastor's cleaning up and he's about to leave. And just as he hits the door, the chef yells, hey, I didn't realize you were a pastor. What kind of church do you pastor? And in a moment where he was in the right place at the right time and the right thing came to his mind, he said, a church that throws parties for prostitutes. And the chef looked at him funny and said, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because I'd go to a church like that. I'd go to a church like that. A church that throws parties for prostitutes. In a little diner in Honolulu, the kingdom of God was breaking in that morning. And for a few short moments, there became this subtle reminder that we are all formed in the image of God. It was less about identity markers, less about vocation, and more about the hand that has crafted the world. You know, and I imagine that in this room, there are some mixed reactions to that story. Some of you may be scandalized by the mere thought of embracing someone with such a profession. Like you did say that they were in the sex industry, right? And others of you may just be uncomfortable with the thought of throwing a party and associating with sort of those people. You have lines and that is outside the lines. You have boundaries and those are crossing them. But the truth is that for many of us, we all have some invisible barriers up, and they all live right here. We classify people, the haves and the have-nots, the moral and the immoral, the competent and the lazy. And in this city, we have one of the largest barriers doubling as the most invisible one, and it is the barrier of class. And we are walking through the four 
core identity pillars of who we are as followers of Jesus. Right? We are children of God. We are missionaries to our city. We are servants to King Jesus, and we are citizens of another kingdom. And two weeks ago, we addressed one of the more daunting topics for those of us in the West, and that is what does Jesus say about our money? What does it mean to be generous people or people of generosity? And today, we continue our journey on what it means to serve King Jesus by engaging in what it means to live among the margins. Class. It's the marker that divides without being seen. It's the idea that there are rich and there are poor and no one says to separate and no one says to segregate and no one says to disassociate. But the unwritten and unspoken norm of our city is that we do. We eat with those like us, who talk like us, who act like us, who have the same hobbies as us, who watch the same Netflix documentaries as us. It is our bent. Human beings do not naturally engage with others not like them. Every culture does it. Every people group does it. Every type of person does it. We are magnets to ourselves. We love the mirror. And yet, to engage with those unlike us is exactly what it means to follow Jesus. It is a large, large implication of what it means to follow him. And pretty regularly in this city, uh, Compassion Coalition puts on a simulation where folks who have never experienced poverty look at it square in the face for a few hours. And I would recommend, honestly, anyone who has the opportunity to take it to do it. It is sobering and enlightening, especially for those of us who have never walked in the shoes of the poor. But after I went through it a few years back, I remember having this very distinct thought. Poverty is not namely about money. Now, material poverty means one has less money, but it's not purely about money. It's actually about choice. It's the ability to choose what I want to do with my money. That is the inverse of poverty. Poverty is the inability to choose what I want to do with my money. If we're going to be people who take Jesus seriously and who follow Jesus soberly, then we get the beautiful privilege of living an integrated life and an integrated faith. And that life and that faith is deeply, deeply tied to those on the margins of our city. So just a few things at the outset here. If we were to take a macro view of poverty, we see that there are massive inequities around the world. Right? There is extreme poverty, the reality that close to 700 million people live on less than $2 a day. There is multidimensional poverty. Uh, sometimes poverty isn't namely about income. It's about a family with no electricity, no access to plumbing, no clean drinking water, and no one who's completed any school for more than six years. And then there is poverty that is entrenched in cultures because of fragile context. <clears throat> so things like political turmoil, military invasion, poor infrastructure, uh, corrupt leadership, ethnic discrimination, domestic violence. I mean, the list goes on. Those are all at play in poverty. And that, quite frankly, is barely scratching the surface. And I know when people hear that, it can feel daunting, overwhelming, paralyzing. And you hear them and they're just stats. So let's bring it down a bit to a more manageable level. In 2019, the U.S. Census reported that 24% of Knoxville lives at or below the poverty line. 24%. A quarter of the people, 
according to the U.S. Census, in our city live in poverty. That means that they make less than $33 a day. Meaning, if someone does not make $33 a day, $33 a day, they will not have the funds to afford a life with food, shelter, and clothing. And to give you a couple practical outworkings of specific marginalized communities, in Tennessee alone, there are currently around 9,000 kids in the foster care system, and 500 of those kids came to DCS in March. According to 2019 data, 30% of families living in Knoxville children live in a single parent household. So, a thir- almost a third of families with children only have one parent living in the home. Now, the issue of poverty has been around since the dawn of time. Right? Inequities have always existed. They exist for personal reasons, people making unwise and foolish choices that put them well behind the eight ball. They exist for social and cultural reasons. People inherit decisions that were made for them that they had nothing to do with and they are left to pick up the pieces. And they exist for structural and systemic reasons. There are certain written and unwritten rules and laws and barriers of our day that perpetuate poverty both here and around the world. And like so many things, poverty is complex. It is nuanced. It is much more than meets the eye. And complex issues require complex answers and typically complex solutions. Because the issue wasn't so complex, we'd have already fixed it. And yet, we realize that until Jesus returns, we will not eradicate poverty. And our goal isn't necessarily to eradicate poverty. But neither do we have the choice to turn a blind eye and pretend it doesn't exist because it doesn't affect me. We are invited into the story that God is writing. And the title of one of the chapters of that book is that the last shall be first. Years ago, Spencer Perkins, who wrote a book called More Than Equals, says this, I have become convinced that God is not very interested in the church healing the race problem. I believe it is more true that God is using race to heal the church. I believe that to be true, and I believe that to be true of class as well. God is not so much interested in the church healing the problem of poverty. God will use poverty to heal the church. Now, our teaching text today comes from the book of Isaiah, right? The people of God, the Israelites, have their private spirituality down pat. They pray, they sing, they fast, they worship. They don't just read the Torah, they recite it. They are acing their private life with God. God himself even says, they delight to know my ways in Isaiah 58. But here's the issue. It isn't translating to public life. The the private spirituality of the Israelites never makes it to the public square. They may worship in their tabernacle, but they ignore and despise those in the neighborhood. He says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Translation, your prayer means nothing to me. It is futile and shameful. So what is the type of worship that the Lord is honored by? What is the type of life the Lord receives glory from? Well, he says it in Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? 
when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? If you were to read the Old Testament law, you would see it almost never addresses those who are poor and powerless or the vulnerable or the ones on the margins. It almost always addresses those who wield social and economic power. The onus of the law always falls on the ones who have the most to lose. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, The law addresses the creditor, not the debtor, Deuteronomy 24.6. The employers, not the day laborers, Deuteronomy 24.14. The slave owners, not the slaves, Exodus 21.26 and Deuteronomy 15. Robert Guerrero works in New York City and is a vice president of the City to City Network, and he makes a profound observation. He says this, In the library of Scripture, God repeatedly rebukes the Israelites for their worship of God that is void of giving their life to the poor. But you never find God rebuking them for their care for the poor that is void of worshiping God. Why? Because that type of lifestyle is almost non-existent. I know no one who follows Jesus who has given their life to those on the margins who somehow thinks that is above worshiping Jesus in prayer or scripture or rest and song. The truth is that it's easy to come here on a Sunday and worship God. For many of us, it can feel easy in the privacy of our own home to pray and to read and to listen and to study even to love those inside the walls of your social circles. And, hear me, we are compelled by Jesus to do those things. We want to read. We want to listen to the Spirit of God. We want to engage those who are in our direct sphere of community and sphere of influence. We want to study the Scriptures and see what it says. But it is much less natural and much more difficult to step outside the walls of your friend groups and seek to give your life away to those who do not improve your social standing. So take a walk with God in the park that is simple and that is good. Step into the shoes of a refugee from Tanzania and walk with them through the transition of life in a place like Knoxville. Much more difficult, equally good. Living with and loving those on the margins is worship of God and it is the inevitable overflow of a life saturated in God. And see, avoiding those on the margins is not a neutral act. It is actually an act of willful avoidance. In Isaiah 58, God's instruction to Isaiah is to declare to the people their sin. Their sin. And for many of us, we are tempted to think, you know, some folks are just more equipped to do that type of work. Some people are just better at it, and some people love doing it, and so they should follow the Spirit of God and do that. You would be right. (laughs) There are those who are equipped to do that type of work, and our name for them is disciples of Jesus, followers of the way, the church of God. That is who is equipped for that type of work. And to see the heart of God, I want to paint two pictures for you in the form of two people. The first person is Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. I want you to consider something for a moment. Consider the fact that God, sovereign king overall, maker of the universe, could have chosen any route to come to earth. Any route. 
He could have come as a magistrate. He could have come from the clouds. He could have come from the ground. He could have come a hundred years earlier or a thousand years later. He could have come with an army of angels or a litany of heavenly beings. He could have come in might. He could have come with sword. He could have come with an overwhelming display of power. But he didn't. He came as a Nazarene. He chose to come through a woman, a young teenage woman, a woman with no real say or stature in society, a woman living in a podunk, know-nothing town called Nazareth. And when God entered through the womb of a young teenager, she wasn't one from a big name or great inheritance. It's not as if her or Joseph were rolling in money. In fact, we have it on pretty good authority that they were poor. We see in Leviticus 14, 21 through 22, some instructions on what happens when you don't have the means for proper sacrifices according to the Mosaic law. It says this, But if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived, to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil. Also, two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. The one shall be a sin offering, and the other a burnt offering. Now, skip ahead to Luke 2, 22-24, and read Luke's account of Joseph and Mary once Jesus had been born. <clears throat> and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So why? Why would God come in the form of a poor Middle Eastern Palestinian child? Why would he come in the midst of an emperor committing infanticide among boys his age across the empire, opening himself up to complete vulnerability and possibly barbaric execution as an infant? Why? Because that is who he is. The heart of God deep down is compassion. When God introduced himself to Moses, Israel's first great prophet, this is how that introduction went. And he, passed, he God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And that introduction would become the most quoted scripture in the Bible by the Bible. He is not someone who looks down from on high and merely sees those who are low. He becomes low. In the Roman Empire, a poor woman was considered a prostitute and openly available. There was no one of lower standing than that of a poor woman living in that period in that empire. And there is no one more powerless and vulnerable than an infant. And God makes his grand appearance through a tiny virgin womb of a young woman and shows us something profound. Weakness is power. Vulnerability is strength. God shows us where power resides and it's not with those who think they have it. And it's not for those who deeply crave it. It is for the vulnerable. Those who know their weakness. Person two is the leper. And like many things in scripture, leprosy can feel somewhat distant and unidentifiable. So let's put ourselves back into the time and place of early New Testament. 
Leprosy is a gross and grotesque disease, one that takes over body and psyche, sores covering every inch of who you are. It is a boiling away of your skin and in some ways your soul. If you had leprosy, you weren't welcome around commoners. You lived in a leper colony so as not to spread an infectious disease to other people. Many lepers would die alone, outcasted, and separated from the people they love. Here's the deal. You just didn't have a disease. You were considered diseased. And people in that day were under the impression that obtaining leprosy was not just unfortunate, but was actually a curse. This was God spiting you. Leprosy was not just a physical death sentence, it was a relational death sentence, and it felt like a spiritual death sentence. In the Old Testament, a leper was to yell, unclean, unclean, so as to announce, you don't want to come near me. I am other. The lepers aren't allowed in the temple. They aren't allowed in the camp. They are outside the city gate. They are literally on the margins of the neighborhood. But there's an interesting story in Mark where God meets a leper. Mark 1, 40 through 45 says this, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming coming to him from every quarter. Now watch what happens here. For the first time in the history of the world, When a leper touches a clean person, leprosy does not move from the leper to Jesus. Grace moves from Jesus to the leper. Since the fall, leprosy has traveled one way, and when a leper is touched, they move from the unclean, diseased leper to the innocent, clean one. The contagion always affects, but this time, leprosy leaves the leper, and grace infects him. And then there is this great exchange. Read in 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. The leper receives new life and Jesus gets ostracized. The leper receives back his community, and Jesus is outcasted into the desert. A trade has occurred because a compassionate sacrifice has been made. Jesus moves toward the outsider so that the outsider becomes an insider, and Jesus gets outcasted, and the leper gets welcomed. The most magnificent aspect of God is not that he is only holy, but that his holiness, his perfection, his beauty, his wonder, his awe actually compels him to draw near to the one society has thrown away. Desperation is what draws him. It is his very heart. The scripture says he was moved with pity, not moved by feeling bad. We, we, we misread that. It's moved with deep compassion. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, 
whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God's holiness is so wonderful because it is so accessible. And it's accessible to those who know their desperation. And for those of us who have resource and who have access who have access and who have material possessions, let's just be honest for a moment. We don't know our desperation because we don't feel our desperation. We resource it, we medicate it, we protect ourselves from desperation. And I'm not saying we should go seek out poverty. What I'm saying is we should let poverty teach us something that we too need to be desperate. In fact, uh, Dorothy Day was the leader of the Catholic worker movement. And when asked, how do you remember the gospel? Her answer was this, stay close to the poor. Stay close to the poor. Because staying close to those who don't have the material resources that you do, does it so much remind you to be grateful for what you have? It actually reminds you how desperate you need to be. And then to respond to the Spirit of God to move in close because intimacy and imitation are our heart's desire. Church, my my heartbeat for this community, I've got a few heartbeats, and in one of my heartbeats for this community is it's not enough to serve the poor. It's just not enough to serve the poor. The Pharisees did not have a problem with Jesus serving the poor. Heck, they even served the poor themselves. It's not about charity. It's about community. It's actually about family. The revolutionary idea of Jesus was not that the wealthy should help the poor. The revolutionary idea of Jesus was, was that the wealthy would befriend the poor. The temple-going, Torah-abiding, upstanding citizens of Jerusalem were not offended that Jesus helped those in need. They were offended that he would eat with them. The upside-down kingdom of God is that the last shall be first. It's where the royal hierarchy gets turned upside down, and the king feasts with the beggar, and the priest dines with the prostitute, and the poor dine with the rich, and the king dines with the immigrants, and the ones with wealth, with the ones that have pennies to their name. It's the president with the homeless. It's the millionaire giving up his coat, jacket, and sharing a cup of coffee with the guy who sits and sleeps on his back deck. The kingdom of God is inverted from the empire of man. Now, hear me say this. We, we're not brought into the kingdom because we care for the vulnerable. I mean, there are plenty of people who genuinely are doing great work who hate Jesus. <laughs> we are brought into the kingdom by the grace of Jesus, on the merit of Jesus, through the blood of Jesus, alone. But our caring for the vulnerable will be evidence that we have been brought into the kingdom. Jesus is the root, our lives are the fruit. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Our love of the margins is evidence that we have been wrecked and rattled by the love of God, floored by his grace, and that we are no different than anyone else. Fundamentally, there is no distinction. This is 
the Martin Luther quote, we are only beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. So here's a sobering question. Will you have a reference letter from the poor when you enter into the kingdom? Some people say it will be impossible to enter into the kingdom without a reference letter from the poor. Has your life been so captured by compassion and mercy that it is a natural overflow of your gut? You know, at the beginning of Jesus' life, he is born in a place where animals eat. On the way to his death, he rides in on a borrowed donkey. He spends his final evening in a borrowed room. He's buried in a borrowed tomb. On the cross, he is stripped from the clothes on his back and is hung between two convicted felons. Jesus, having nothing but a piece of fabric covering his waist, framed and put on death row as someone with no status, helpless, groaning for the Father, pleading for the forgiveness for the murderers that put him there, and identifying with criminals. It is the most famous image of Christianity. It is our icon, the cross, the death chamber of Jesus. It shows us something. Jesus doesn't just serve the poor. He's actually in the poor. That's where we find him hanging from the sky with two convicted felons. See, the only way for Jesus to remove us from our poverty and into the riches of his kingdom was for him to remove himself from the riches of his kingdom and step down into our poverty. Power is found in giving up your life, not looking to take it. Power is found in sacrifice. God shows us that. And now we get the supreme privilege to do the same. We imitate him. The reality is that when those of us who have material resources see those who lack material resources, we are looking in the mirror. We should see our own poverty. Maybe it doesn't manifest itself in the exact same way, but it's still there. The emotional poverty, the desperation, the rawness of the frail human condition. See, when man is king, the table is lopsided. There are the powerful and the powerless. There are those who are in command and there are those who are subservient. It's those who have conquered life and those whose life has been conquered. But when Jesus is king, the crown gets level. All are poor, all are in need, all are desperate for forgiveness of sin, for wounds to be healed, for justice to reign, for a father who loves. We are all desperate for compassion. I'll close with a story from John Ortberg. Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. And he moved to a village that had been quarantined to serve as a leper colony. And for 16 years, he lived among them. He learned their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced their bodies that no one would touch. And he preached to hearts that would otherwise have been ignored and most likely mocked. He organized schools and bands and choirs, and he built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. 
Slowly, it was said the village of Kalau became a place to live rather than a place to die. He was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the same bowl as his patients. He shared his pipe. He would even forget to wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close, and for this the people loved him. And then one day he stood up and began his sermon with these two words. We lepers. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island, he was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now, he would die as they died. Now, they were in it together. Folks, one day God came to earth and began his message. We lepers. Now, he wasn't just helping us, he was one of us. Now, he was in our skin. Now we were in it together. Isaiah 58 closes out with the metaphor of a garden, a well-watered garden. It says, Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noon day. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy you, has satisfied your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not the people of God are a garden with Jesus as our gardener where actual life starts to happen where joy starts to break forth where honesty is championed I mean what might happen in this church what might happen in this community if we said we are committed so much to Jesus that our dining room tables are not going to look like typical tables and where our friendships cross economic boundaries and where our lives begin to intersect the lives of the margins. I am not interested in this church merely serving the poor. I am interested in living with them. Knoxville does not need another church that gives lots of money but remains unmoved. I don't want to be disengaged from the margins of our city. I want to be in them. I want to know them and be known by them. I want to love them and be loved by them. And for those of you who have lived this life, you know it gets really uncomfortable. Because the status quo begins to get disrupted. And then we can realize the kingdom of God is moving from our hearts to our hands. It moves from being a concept we believe to something we're becoming. When we start to feel uneasy, when we start to feel a little, oh, this is getting kind of awkward. I'm not sure what to do here. I don't know how to do this. We actually make room for the Spirit of God to comfort us and convict us, to strengthen our hearts and stir our courage. This is where the good stuff happens. 
Now, I will continue to say this, that God is not a coercive God. He is not going to strong arm us into this. He is not going to force us into this. He is merely inviting us into where he is, who he is. A church where prostitutes find dignity and lepers get healed, the lonely find family, the rich becomes poor so that the poor might become rich. A vision, a vision of the kingdom coming. What if the line between heaven and earth got so thin in North Knoxville that you could almost taste the other side? That's what we're after. That's what we're Nothing about this is easy, but everything about this is kingdom. Would you go after that with me? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.